0: Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ, and welcome to the audio ministry of Christ Church of Livingston County. The following are three excerpts from a covenant renewal worship service led by Pastor Dirk DeWinkle, teaching elder at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording.
1: Our call to confession this morning is from Proverbs 26, verse 28. A lying tongue hates those who are crushed by it, and a flattering mouth works ruin. False speech is destructive, and both lying and flattery are forms of false speech. Lying, as we all know, is reporting information that is untrue. Flattery is deceptive praise that is used to manipulate the one that is being flattered. This morning's proverb reminds us that both lying and flattery are destructive because they come from hatred. And hatred is always destructive. Therefore, false speaking is never a benign thing. When we lie, we are expressing a form of hatred and acting in a way that is against God and against his purposes. We are his people and members of his body. His purpose for his body is growth and maturity. False speech opposes this purpose. False speech then has no place in the church But as Christians, as members of Christ's body, it is not enough just to avoid lying or to keep from flattery. It is important not to do the wrong, but at the same time we must be pursuing the right. There is no neutral ground in the Christian life. For example, we are told to put off the old man and put on the new. We do not stop after doing away with the old. We then adorn the new man created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. So, in the case of false, false speech, we must be a people who turn from lying and engage in speaking the truth. Paul states this plainly in Ephesians Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. There cannot be neutral ground in this matter, because speaking the truth is vital to, to the purpose of growth and maturity that God has for his church. Again, listen to the instruction given to us in the book of Ephesians. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. So we all come to unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of stature of the fullness of Christ. There's the purpose. The saints, us, are equipped for the mutual building up and growth of the church. Paul continues, that we should no longer be children, or immature, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of the deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. Speaking the truth in love is how we grow up in the faith, It is how the body of Christ is edified, and it's not just the job of pastors or elders or evangelists, it is a responsibility for us all. We have a duty to know the truth and to be speaking it to one another, teaching it to our children, encouraging each other in God's word. This is why Paul tells the saints in Colossae to let the word of Christ dwell in them richly. So then, let us remember that false speaking, whether lying or flattery, is hateful and destructive. It is no small thing to speak falsely. Let us also remember that we cannot be neutral in this matter. We must be speakers of the truth. And in that vein, let us set aside any notion of individualism within the body of Christ. We owe it to one another to be diligent in the study of God's word and faithful in our Christian walk that we may be well prepared to speak the truth and therefore edify each other. God's word reminds us of our sin and our need to confess. If you are willing and able, please kneel with me as we confess to God.
2: Father in heaven, we ask that you would quiet our spirits, our souls, and our hearts before you. We pray that you will open our minds and our hearts to your teaching and your truth and your life. Pray that you would sanctify and consecrate us, purify us, make us holy. Father, we pray that your word would be effective and powerful to change us, That we would turn from our sin and repent of it. That we would embrace your gospel and cling to it. And that you would fill our hearts with a will to do what you call us to do. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, James we have seen is concerned with teaching us how to live well. He wants us to have wisdom. New Testament wisdom literature. And that means that we need to get our hearts right with God. That's the point of the wisdom that he speaks of in chapter 3, right at the heart of the book. When he speaks of the wisdom that is from above, that is first pure Then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality, and without hypocrisy. That's James' aim, is to to instruct us in what that wisdom is. He makes the comparison with worldly wisdom. And he says, this brings peace and life, that brings Confusion, evil, and death. And since that section of James three, James has been elaborating on it, explaining it to us. Um, we saw in a few week, a few weeks ago in James five verses seven to eleven, he James told us to be to patiently endure, to not grumble against one another and to persevere because God is. and because he is, and because of who He is, there's both warning and blessing involved in patient endurance. The warning, the stick, is this. God judges, literally. He says, do not grumble. Why? Lest you be condemned, behold, the judge is standing at the door. That's a stick. That's a warning. Verse 9. And there's a carrot. There's a blessing that... it's. That we must patiently endure because God is good. You have seen the end intended by the Lord. That the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. That's a definition of what goodness is. God is kind. He's generous. He's compassionate and merciful. He lays down His life for us. He pours Himself out into us and for us and on our behalf. That is the God whom the Bible reveals to us. That is the God who reveals himself to us in his word. This patient endurance is manifested in integrity. Verse 12. Let your yes be yes and your no, no, lest you fall into judgment. We covered that last week. So this patient endurance is manifested in integrity, and it's also manifested in prayer, which is the primary concern of our text today, James 5, verses 13 through 18. In this, James is coming round full circle to the beginning of the book. He started the book with, Count it all joy when you encounter various trials, because trials perfect you. They they make you mature and complete and whole. And if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God without doubting. Pray. That's where James started. He says patiently endure and pray. And at the end he says patiently endure and pray. So here he tells us endure and pray. Now last week I talked about how the command to integrity is a hinge verse between patient endurance and prayer. And let me remind you how that worked. Patient endurance is a manifestation of our faith. We believe in God because God is. That's why we must patiently endure. Uh, So verses 7 to 11 focus inwardly at our hearts. They focus inwardly. They say, look, this is the way you need to think. This is the way you need to behave. Verse 12 focuses on our outward witness. The the, the necessity for truth. Because God is true, we must be true. And our text today is focused on changing reality. Because because God is true, we must patiently endure and speak truth. In, In our text today, the hinge is going to this. It's an outward focus. God is choosing to work through us and effectively change the world and effectively establish his kingdom. To put that wisdom that he talked back about back in, in chapter three to work. So God invites, he commands us to participate in his work in the world, and therefore our faith must have traction. That's why we're commanded to pray. Because faith without works is dead. That's why we're commanded to pray. Prayer. God's work. It reaches to all of our experience. From, from our good ones to our bad ones. Our best ones to our worst ones. It reaches to all of our problems. And God is powerful and effective in bringing life healing, restoration, peace, joy, and hope. So let's begin with how God's work and His command to pray reaches to all of our experience. James opens this section with an exhortation to prayer and singing, suffering and cheerfulness held in check. James 5, verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. Now, again, this is not so much an abrupt change of topic. It sounds like it. When we read it in English, and we, it sounds like it. It says, well, be truthful. Let your yes be yes. Let your no be no. If you're suffering, pray. If you're cheerful, sing psalms. No, he's fleshing out patient endurance and speaking simply and truthfully. The fact of the matter is that our experiences, our circumstances, our feelings, our emotions have profound implications for us. They they impact our souls. Your circumstances affect your worldview. They, they they, They define who you are. They, they you, you. You think of yourself in categories. Your feelings define how how you're doing. When you ask somebody, "How are you doing?" Well, I'm I'm not doing so well. I've got problems. I'm I'm suffering. It hurts. How are you doing? Great. Yeah, everything's going along. Yo, know, God is good. This is this is awesome. Right? You're that cheerfulness. these, These feelings, these emotions have profound impacts on our souls. Our emotions can turn a beautiful, delightful, glorious, sunny summer day into a pit of despair. Our emotions can do that. Everything can be going on just fine. And then we remember something that has happened to us or some sin we've committed, or some way we've hurt someone else. Or we hear of a tragedy, a persecution, bombings in France. And everything can be, nothing's really changed in your immediate circumstances other than this new information. But because of your emotions, because of your feelings, because of this circumstance, all of a sudden, everything is not so fine our world can be turned upside down in the blink of an eye at the same time on the other hand the encouragement of a friend an unexpected gift or surprise or the excitement of love can give us as the song puts it when it's cold outside i've got the month of may you know, it can, we, it can be a dreary day, and we can be on cloud nine. Every, every cloud has a silver lining, and you are seeing it. So our emotions affect the way we see the world and perceive what's going on. But our emotions change. As, as in my example a minute ago. Our feelings are fickle. But that doesn't mean that they're nothing. It doesn't mean that they're not important. It doesn't mean that we must completely disregard them. When James tells us, patiently endure, it, we get this, this picture of you know, the stoic just gritting his teeth. I'm going to get through this. You know, I, I'm going to be a robot. And... That is not what God is interested in. He doesn't want us to be robots. We have these emotions. God gave us these emotions. He made us with these feelings. So if these emotions are fickle and we can't rely upon them, but we're not supposed to be robots, what's the point of them? Why does God give us all of these Tensions in our lives. Emotions are like money. They're useful tools. They're effective tools. Emotions are a barometer to tell us how we are doing. That's why we ask, how are you doing? And our emotions impact the answer. We should learn to use our emotions to identify problems or things to be grateful for. They're they're a tool, they're useful for for these things. But emotions are more than just a weather gauge. Emotions are fuel. They drive us to strong and powerful action. Thus we should use them as catalysts to spur us on to greater faithfulness, greater praise, greater worship. Greater fervency in our prayers. Emotions are tools. God gave them to us to to drive us to faithfulness. They're very powerful. But also, just like money, emotions make terrible masters. Because they're fickle. You cannot be ruled by your emotions. That's the definition of a lack of self-control. You must keep your emotions in check. You must control them. It doesn't mean bottle them up or get rid of them. But it, and that, the Bible tells us to channel them into godly expressions, into faithful expressions. That's the point of this verse. From suffering to cheerfulness, which pretty much covers the whole gambit of our emotions, the dark to the light. And in both ends of the spectrum, James tells us to express our emotions in specific ways. Prayer for suffering and singing psalms for cheerfulness. We're never allowed autonomy. And this is important because our wicked hearts love autonomy. We love to try and control our own destiny. We love to stand on our own two feet and tell the world how we feel about it. Our wicked hearts love to clench on to the fuel and power of emotions to spur us on to great acts of pride, arrogance, and wickedness. And James says, no. Pray or sing songs. There's a lie in the way wor- that the world sees everything, in, in relativism or in postmodernity. It's the, the lie that says that everyone is autonomous. And everybody's opinion and experiences or choices are valid. Or the world tells us if it feels good, do it. There is no good, there is no bad, there is just being. And in being there's fulfillment. And this is a lie because as James has just got done saying, God sets standards and God judges. The problem with autonomy is that it justifies all sorts of wickedness. People think of themselves as the protagonist in their own story. They're always the good guy. Or the victim in their own story. They're always the innocent party. And so we have this victimhood mentality that says. I am the persecuted one. Therefore whatever I do or I say is justified. Because I'm the one who hurts. And our society is filled with people who are walking around. Beating people up. Because they're the one who hurts. Because people don't look to God. They don't channel their emotions in godly ways. They don't hold themselves accountable for their own actions because, because they are the protagonist or the hero. They, because they're the victim, the one that's suffering in their own stories. But they're believing a lie in that autonomy or in that self-proclaimed autonomy. James tells us what we are supposed to do if we're suffering. Are you suffering? Are you hurting? In most churches, probably most hands would go up if you asked that question. The definition of the Christian life is, take up your cross and follow me. Where did Jesus go? To the cross. Where are we following him? Through a life of sacrifice. Are you suffering? Are you hurting? Then pray. Pray to God. Voice your frustration. Voice your anger. Voice your pain. Voice your confusion to Him. Express it to Him. Because ultimately, He is the only one who can change your circumstances. He's the only one who can heal you. He's the only one who can fix your problems. It's in His hands. Nobody else can do it. Nobody can counteract what God is doing. Pray. All sinful responses to our emotions. Outbursts of wrath. Evil speaking. Wars and fights. Lusts and greed. Adulteries. Selfishness. And the list goes on and on and on. These all come from worldly wisdom and result in confusion and every evil thing. They hinder the gospel and they lie about the God of the Bible. Your God. Sin is never an answer to the problem. You can feel like doing all of that. I get that. Life stinks sometimes. It's really hard. Bad things happen, bad circumstances occur. People really get hurt, people really get killed. But in suffering, we're supposed to turn to God who is there. He's here. He's always been here. He's not going anywhere. He's here. And prayer is effective for bringing peace, healing, and salvation. And more on this in 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 just a minute. But first we need to cover cheerfulness. Are you suffering? Pray to God. Are you cheerful? Sing songs. Why does James have to cover this? I mean, we think if you're cheerful, there's not a problem, right? That's what we think. Everything's fine. That's why James has to cover this. God doesn't want us to be a bunch of annoying goody two-shoes. It's not what this is about. It's not like you have to be the, the super annoying Christian, like quoting Bible verses at everybody and singing psalms. Jesus talks about that. You know the guy who cheerfully greets his neighbor early in the morning? Yeah. That's what the Bible the Bible talks about that. It's not about that. It's about this. We must remember and praise God for the good things he gives to us. Are you cheerful? That's great. That's a blessing from God. That He's given you whatever it is you've got, and He's given you the power to enjoy it. That's we covered this in Ecclesiastes. That's a gift from God. Are you cheerful? Sing praise to God. And we must do this because we have a sinful temptation in that state to forget God. Everything's going along fine. We could stand on our own two feet. Right? Back to that autonomy problem. We, we want to just stand on our own feet, go our merry way. That's not faithfulness. It doesn't display the love of God or faith in Him. It just shows somebody who is kind of full of himself and going along his merry way. We need to harness our emotions and express them in godly ways. James develops this command to pray in the next few verses. Specifically, he's talking about sickness and prayer. Verse 14. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. One of the first steps to healing is the identification of need. Right? Is anyone among you sick? That's the first step. Saying, hey, I'm sick. Hey, I have a problem. I need help. One of the first steps to healing is the identification of need. Jesus told the Pharisees that He came to save the lost and the ailing because the the well have no need of a physician. This means that there's a necessary element of humility in the path toward healing. A recognition that I need help. I don't have the answers. I can't fix myself. I can't heal myself. I need Jesus. I need the, the body of Christ. I need the elders, the church to come pray for me. The answer lies outside of you. There's also a recognition of the covenantal nature of faith and the power of the gospel. God saves us into a body, into a community, into the church. When we're baptized, we're baptized into Christ. We're baptized into a body. There's no autonomy here. We're not individual free agents floating around within the church. No, we're all tied together in Christ in our baptisms in, in the Lord's Supper in our lives and in our inner relationships with one another we depend upon one another when one member hurts the whole body hurts the body is identified by mercy and compassion and this is why the elders or rulers of the local body are included in the prayer for healing they're representative of the body their presence is representative of the whole body participating and praying for health and healing and forgiveness. Remember that in the parable of the lame man who was lowered through the roof. It's not a parable. It's a story. Remember the lame man was, was lowered through the roof by his four friends. And, and Jesus was in the packed house. They couldn't get in the door. So they climbed up on the roof and took the tiles off and lowered him through. Jesus healed him and he forgave his sins. Not in that order. First he forgave his sins and then he healed him. But on what basis? Because he saw the faith of his friends. When Jesus saw the faith of his friends, he said to the man, your sins are forgiven you. His friend's faith forgave his sins. His friend's Faith enabled him to get up and walk. We are tied to one another. We live in a body, in a community, a church. We must depend on one another. So don't be afraid to call out for help when you need it. Practice that humility. Next we see the prayer of the elders and the anointing with oil. And this is... Historically, a challenging verse. What does that mean? What was going on there? What is the oil all about? The Roman Catholic Church has, takes it as justification for their sacrament of extreme unction, which they perform at, on people's deathbeds. It's a blessing and it's a, a, a washing away of sins as they enter into the next life. Some have tried to explain this as, well, it was first century medicinal application. It was was just, that was what they called medicine back then. So it doesn't really apply to us. And others have seen it as a symbol of the presence of the Holy Spirit. Or dedication or prayers. The Roman Catholics go too far with it. And as far as medicinal value goes, it was a practice to treat wounds with oil, just like the Good Samaritan did when he bound up the the injured man's wounds with oil. Um, but it wasn't commonly practiced for um, it wasn't a treatment for sickness at large or in general. It was that it was a wound treatment. I think it's best to take this as an encouragement for the sick. We anoint with oil because the Bible tells us to. But it's like the oil of gladness in the Old Testament. Or the anointing your head with oil as preparation for a party. We suffer, but we suffer with hope. We don't suffer in despair. Um It's also a a bit of a special identification or a a dedication of the individual for the purpose of prayer, for healing. That's what it means to be anointed in the name of the Lord. That's that's the the terminology James uses. Anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. It's a a sanctification or a, a dedication ceremony. It objectively symbolizes the attention of the church. Of the elders, as well as the prayers offered up for the believer who's being prayed for. And it would also have been an encouragement for them after the, the elders left. Did that really happen? Oh, yeah, I've still got oil on my head. A, a reminder of God's grace, God's goodness for them in their place. Finally, James asserts the effectiveness. Of the prayer of faith. In verses 15 and 16. And the prayer of faith will save the sick. And the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins. He will be forgiven. Confess your trespasses to one another. And pray for one another. That you may be healed. The effective fervent prayer of a righteous man. Avails much. This is another challenging Set of verses. Again, we're struck with some serious theological problems. But first, let's take note of how closely physical healing and spiritual healing are tied together. James can't mention the healing of the sick without going straight to forgiveness of sins. This is a constant through the New Testament. Jesus heals people and forgives their sins. They go together. Jesus is the great physician and he doesn't divide the body from the soul. But he mends both. He's holistic in his healing. The forgiveness of sins is connected with confession and repentance. And the healing is connected with faith. The spiritual and physical healing are connected with faith. Both go hand in hand. God effectively saves the sick through the prayers of his saints. That's the promise of the verse. But this is where we come to the theological problem of this. What if God says no? What then? Is James a liar? Sometimes God says no. Otherwise, I mean... If he didn't if he if he never says no that no Christian could ever die of sickness it would be a it would be a judgment on them if they did their wickedness cuz their prayers weren't effective they must not have had faith can that be the case is that possible Or are, are, they, are they harboring secret sin? They're not confessing? Is that why they're not being healed? For the answer to this, we need to go to a few examples of how this works in the Bible. We are not to judge who sinned. It's not our place. Remember the blind man, about whom the apostles asked, whose sin is responsible for his blindness, this man or his parents? And Jesus answered and said, Neither. His infirmity was for the sake of displaying the gospel's glory. That's why he had blindness, so that Jesus could heal him, and God's name could be magnified. What about all the prayers of his parents and that blind man? His whole life growing up, they weren't ineffectual because he didn't because of sin. Jesus says he wasn't guilty of sin. That's not why this this is. There is sin that causes sickness. Paul says to the Corinthians that sin was a cause of sickness and death in their churches. 1 Corinthians 11.30. He's talking about how they were really messing up their Lord's Supper practices. And he says, For this reason many are weak and sick among you and many sleep. Meaning they're dead. Sin can bring sickness. And And in that scenario, forgiveness and repentance... Are necessary for healing in life. And healing. Physical healing. So sin can be a part of it. And wise Christians will discern. Whether that is the case. Paul also uses examples of the Old Testament. To display God's displeasure with sin in his people. And the resultant. Consequences. He was. He, specifically in. In. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 10, he was talking about how many of the Old Testament saints died in the wilderness because of their sin. They didn't make it to the promised land. If you go back and read those stories, it just time and again, they were sort of a plague and, 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 and disaster because of their sin. So yes, it, it can be connected to that. But it's not necessarily... But we see Christian saints pray to God asking for relief and it's denied them. Paul himself was denied healing. God said no to him. 2 Corinthians 12 verses 7 to 10. This is Paul. And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan, to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure." Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. Did Paul not have faith? Of course he had faith. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. And so Paul says, okay, Lord. Lord. Okay. He, he concludes, you are God, I am not. I will accept this from your hand. I'll embrace it. Listen to what he says. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in, in, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. God says no sometimes. We just got done preaching on let your yes be yes and your no be no. People can take that pretty extreme. They can say, well, then I'm never going to commit to anything because it might not come to pass. Paul deals with that too. In the beginning of the book of 2 Corinthians, Paul deals with a situation where he had told the Corinthians that he was going to come to visit them. But then he decided not to for circumstantial reasons. 2 Corinthians 1, starting at 15. And in this confidence, I intended to come to you before that you might have a second benefit, to pass by the way of you to Macedonia, to come again from Macedonia to you and be helped by you on my way to Judea. Therefore, when I was planning this, did I do it lightly, or the things I planned, do I plan according to the flesh, that with me there should be yes, yes, and no, no? It's exactly the language that James has just come off of using. But as God is faithful, our word to you was not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me, Silvanus, and Timothy, was not... Yes and no, but him in him was yes. For all the promises of God in him are yes. And in him, amen to the glory of God through us. Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us is God who also has sealed us and given us the spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. So he's just got done saying, I intended to come to you. I told you I was going to come to you. And I didn't plan that lightly. And God is faithful. And then he says this. Moreover, I call God as my witness against my soul. That to spare you, I came no more to Corinth. Not that we have dominion over your faith, but our fellow workers for your joy. For by faith you stand. But I determined this within myself. That I would not come again to you in sorrow. For if I make you sorrowful, then who is he who makes me glad but the one who is made sorrowful by me? Paul says, I had a harsh word for you, and I was coming to give it to you, and I decided not to, because I don't want to make you sorrowful. God's promises are faithful. Jesus is yes. That's what we proclaimed to you before. That's what I was proclaiming to you when I told you I was coming, and God revealed to me that it's better that I don't come. So I'm not coming. And I'm not being unfaithful to my word and not coming. I'm being faithful to Jesus. Sometimes God says no to our prayers. But we must accept by faith that his story is good. And we are called to boast in our infirmities like Paul. Because God is strong. And God delivers. Our chief example in this is our Lord Jesus Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. On the night in which He was betrayed, He cried out to God and sweat drops of blood and in the end, accepted God's path of suffering. He cried out to God to be delivered from... May this cup pass from me. Listen to what... Paul tells us in Hebrews about what Jesus did. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7. Who in the days of his flesh, speaking of Jesus, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear. Jesus prayed fervently. For God to deliver him from this trial. And God heard him because he was faithful. Though he was a son. Yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected. He became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey Him. Count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials because they make you perfect, just like Jesus' sufferings perfected Him and brought salvation to the world. Paul gives us a glimpse behind the curtain of how all this works in Philippians 2. He tells us, Jesus came in order to be humiliated. He endured the cross and the suffering and the shame for the sake of the glory of God and the glory that was set before him. For our sakes. But he didn't want to go through it. He prayed for deliverance and God said no. All this goes to show us that sometimes, frequently, God heals and saves Frequently, God answers our prayers and saves the sick. It's exactly what we saw with Truman a few years ago. We prayed for him, and God healed him. It's miraculous. You see him walking around, he's, he's normal, it's beautiful, glorious. You praise God. What cause to rejoice? What fuel for psalm singing? At the same time, sometimes God says no and has a path of trials. And we must then look through those trials for eternal reward and eternal glory. Regardless of your circumstances or situation, you must turn to God in prayer. But this is not futile or pointless. You know, I've heard the example of praying to a tomato because you get the same answer that God gives you—either yes or no. Right? It's an atheistic argument or an agnostic argument. I prayed to the tomato and I got it. The tomato gave it to me. I didn't get it. The tomato said no. How's that? How's your God any better than the tomato? James 5, verse, the rest of verse 16 to verse 18. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. God uses his people. God uses their prayers and their obedience to effect change on the earth. Elijah is one of the Bible's all-stars. The guy's awesome. I mean, he took on 400 prophets of Baal, and he doused that sacrifice with water and prayed to God and God sent fire from heaven and consumed all the sacrifice and all the water and he led God's people in, as, as an army to destroy the prophets of, Je- of Baal right. Elisha was his, his, his understudy and Elisha pretty awesome too Elisha watched Elijah go up into heaven in a chariot of fire Both Elijah and Elisha separated the waters of the Jordan so they could walk through on dry land. He's an all-star. He was awesome in holiness and power. And James brings him down to us. He wasn't different. He was a man with a like nature to ours. He was human, just like you and me. He was earnest and fervent in his prayer. And God used him mightily to accomplish his will and to establish his witness in the earth. What James doesn't remind us uh, is, is what happened immediately after God destroyed the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. Well, he does. Immediately after that, he got down on his knees and prayed for rain and God sent rain on the dry earth that was on drought for three and a half years. And immediately after that, Elijah ran. And he ran into the wilderness, and he despaired. He was a man with a like nature to ours. He cried out to God, just kill me now. Why do you let me live? Wicked Queen Jezebel is trying to kill me now. I, nobody else. I'm here all alone. He prayed. He cried out to God. And God answered him with comfort and with encouragement. He says, I have reserved unto myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. He showed himself to Elijah. He came in the whirlwind and the fire and the earthquake, and he was in the still small voice. Our lives are full of ups and downs, emotional highs and lows. We're prone to both pride and despair. But our God is the God who loves us and saves us, who stoops down to us where we are at, and he wants to share in our lives, in our burdens. He wants to bring and establish his life in us, through us, and around us. He cares about you, individually, every single one of you. He wants your heart. He wants your soul. He wants to encourage you. He wants to build you up. He wants to shore you up. He wants to strengthen you. He wants to give you hope. He wants to show you his love. All he asks is that we ask The exhortations, the commands for us to pray are ubiquitous in the Bible. That means they're everywhere. Throughout the Bible you will find commands to pray. The Psalms are God's prayer book displaying for us sanctified expressions of virtually every emotion we can have. Do you feel like praising? Do you feel like worshiping? Do you feel like giving thanks? Do you feel like remembering God's power and work? You can find all that in the Psalms. Do you feel like confessing your sin, beating your breasts? You can find that in the Psalms. Are you jealous? Are you angry? Do you desire revenge and vindication? Do you feel like you have been taken advantage of? You can find that in the Psalms. Do you despair? It's in the Psalms. God gave us these emotions. But he also gives us the handbook to channel them. We're not lost with them. They don't have to push us off the rails. Jesus commands us to pray. In the Lord's Prayer, he tells us how to pray. He says, pray this way. He gives us parables about prayer. The unjust judge. The widow has to petition over and over and over again. And the judge finally says, well, I'm not going to do this because she deserves justice. I'm going to do it because I'm annoyed. Jesus says, be like the widow. Be persistent in your prayer. Or the friend who already went to bed and had his children in bed with him and his friend comes knocking on the door. I've got some visitors. I need some extra bread. Go away, got, I'm already in bed, leave me alone. He won't come down because he's his friend, but he will come down because he's persistent. Jesus says, be like the persistent God. Pray. Because God's not like the unjust judge, and God's not like the friend who's a busy, preoccupied. God cares. If a son asks his father for bread, does he give him a stone? And when son asks his father for fish, does he give him a scorpion? No! And our heavenly father is holy and perfect and good and merciful and kind. Pray! We even have Jesus' own prayers recorded for us. The whole chapter of John 17 is Jesus praying. Jesus, And it's glorious how Jesus prayed. He prays for you and for me. In faith and hope. Paul tells us that he prayed always in all his prayers. For all his beloved disciples. Every one of them he was writing to. I make mention of you always in all my prayers. Pretty much across the board he's telling them that. in His epistles. We serve a personal and a relational God. That's why we pray to Him. We're supposed to have a relationship with Him. Talk to Him. If we want His healing, His instruction, His comfort, His blessing, if we crave and need His hope and His security, we must ask for it. And I leave you with an exhortation from the end of 1 Thessalonians. Pray without ceasing. In everything. Give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, let us pray. Father, we come before you, and we pray to you, and we ask you to fill us with your life. Show us your closeness to us. Speak to us in prayer. Draw us to yourself in prayer. Help us to repent of not praying. Help us to be faithful in praying. Help us to bring before you all of our desires and wants and needs. Help us to come and bring everything to you. Help us to remember you in our joy. And help us to call out to you in our pain and suffering. Help us to to trust you. Help us... To discern and decipher what it is that your will is for us. To understand your calling on us in our lives. So that we might be faithful. Faithful to walk down the paths that you have for us. Father, we ask for your blessing in our lives. We pray for your redemption and salvation. The forgiveness of sins. And the healing of our bodies and our our souls. Father, we thank you that you've given to us prayer. And that you've revealed to us yourself as the God who is and who works in our world. And we thank you for inviting us into participation in you with this. Father, we pray this all. And now we conclude. He does control all things. And He does ordain what comes to pass. But He's revealed Himself as both personal and intimately interested in us. He wants our peace and our fulfillment. He desires unity and restoration. He suffered so that we can have that peace. He comes to change our reality. And He changes us through prayer. He changes us through worship. And He changes us through faith. He gives us food and He gives us strength. Both physically and spiritually to endure and to accomplish the work that He has for us. In obedience and submission, we find life and hope and joy. Trust Him for no one else has life. No one else can deliver. Rest in Him believe in His truth, and receive His love and comfort, which are all symbolized and sealed for us in this bread and wine, through faith and the work of His Spirit. When we come to this table, we celebrate our Lord, the one whom we are baptized into. When we eat the bread and drink the wine, we confess that we are sinners, and we have no hope, except in Jesus Christ and his blood shed for us. And that he alone can save us. That is our confession. Christ's body, broken for us. Let us pray.
0: Thank you for listening to these excerpts from the worship service of Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in these messages, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact Pastor Dirk DeWingle through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.